Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning into the Gravity Podcast. I have a couple of things to share with you before we jump into the episode. Number one, and most importantly, we've noticed an uptick in listeners to the podcast this year, so I want to take a second to welcome new members to the Gravity community and let you know how much I appreciate you choosing to spend some time with me each week. This grand experiment only gets more meaningful as we add more experiences and perspectives to it. Second, I want to let you know that we're taking a little break this summer in order to refresh and relaunch the entire show this September. In the meantime, please enjoy this replay of some of our top episodes over the last three years. But I actually believe that the audience, if you go to them as sort of one core place where it is your home base and and you talk to them, they will go where you tell them, you know, you are. Today, we have Amy Landino. Amy is the award-winning host of Amy TV, a YouTube series dedicated to helping women go after the life they want. With millions of views and more than 300,000 subscribers, she is a leading authority on getting digital attention. Amy is a professional speaker, traveling the world to teach business how they can get the attention they deserve online. And she shares her insights on this in her best-selling book, Vlog Like a Boss, how to kill it online with video blogging. At Aftermark, the video production studio Amy co-founded, she and her associates provide digital video production for brands who want to grab the attention of those who matter to their mission, helping them to grow to, to their maximum potential. So welcome, Amy. Thanks for having me, Brett. It's um, awesome to have you here. As I was telling you before, you were uh, an inspiration to me in uh, doing this. I'm so pleased to hear that. I love yeah. it. I love it. I think I appreciate that. Being on your podcast was really fun. Yeah, and we had a good chat. Seeing the space and just kind of starting to think about it myself helped yeah. me kind of jump in. It was in. funny seeing you walk in because you looked around you were like, hmm, yeah. what is this? Yeah, <laughs> that's like, kind of like what like, I want one. <laughs> space does to me. I kind of like see it, you know, in this tangible thing and then it starts to you know, get clear in my mind. Totally. So um, yeah, here we are. It's awesome to have you. Thank you. So tell me, um, we're going to, we're going to go through your story and your journey, but tell me what you're up to, you know, kind of hot off the press. I know you've got a million things going on, but where are you coming from today and what's kind of front uh, burner for you? Yeah. I mean, it's funny you say that because literally hot off the press, like we're getting my second book done, which I probably should have told you in advance the title of and everything. We're still just like, really, it's taking it one day at a time. But um, Good Morning, Good Life is a mantra that I've always shared with my community in terms of, you know, when you talk about making the most of your day and really being intentional with it, then you can go after the life that you want. And so I'm putting out a book about morning routines. And so that's sort of like the big thing right now. And um, always making fun content, both on video, on Amy TV, which is on YouTube, and then the podcast Detail Therapy. So literally just came from shooting this morning as per usual on a Monday morning, me banging out a video real quick, like, let's get it done. Yeah. So I usually like drop files off on my team and then go to an appointment. And so here we are. Well, you've got a great team. And um, yes, good morning, good life. So I see that and I like it um, as many mornings as I'm actually paying attention to Twitter. But I love just the idea. It actually, I started liking it because it was you, but you know, then like the kind of spark that kind of came from that was like, yeah, you know, 
good morning. It is a good life. Let's like breathe that in for a second. Totally. Yeah. I mean, because if you think of the opposite, I think the majority of the time um, when you wake up in the morning, especially if it's like you had the Sunday scaries and you wake up on Monday and you've got to go to work. And you sometimes if you're not in the right space or even if you're just kind of burnt out at your job, you forget to be grateful for something like that. And you just kind of wake up and uh, maybe look at your phone right away and you feel stressed out and maybe somebody needs your attention right when you wake up and you really don't feel like you own the day. And it's not going to be perfect ever. But I just simply believe that if you tried a little bit harder, even if you only only got 15 minutes that you really got to decide what to do with it, then you could at least start your day on your terms. And mm-hmm. I think just with that little bit of space that you can give yourself, and you're much more likely to have a day where you don't feel so frazzled and and furiously getting things done and therefore don't feel as stressed out at the end of the day that you didn't do what you wanted to do with your time, which ultimately ends up being our our biggest regret, you know? It's not how much work did we get done that we're thinking about later in life. At least I don't think from what I hear. You know, when you think about what you've done with your life and your time, you have to be intentional about it when you have it, not later on. Yeah, no no question. And, And I think you're right. Um, I'm a few years ahead of you, so um, I think I, <laughs> I think yeah, <laughs> I, I think you know maybe I'm closer to knowing if that's true or not <laughs> than you are, but um, I believe it. And and so you know, I'm curious, kind of to back up, you know, where does all of that experience and wisdom come from? Um, you've obviously been very intentional about your life and your work, and you've really been a leader, certainly in in Columbus and and you know beyond nationally, internationally now in this space. And, and I'm curious to kind of like, let's start from the beginning, you know, your kind of childhood, how you were raised and, and maybe we can, you know, eventually start to connect the dots into how you fell into this work. Sure. Absolutely. I feel like everything has come to light. I think I keep saying it's because once you know something, you can't unknow it. And it's been this process of not being able to unknow something that you you make changes in your life and you're like, oh my gosh, if I just, if that's true, then I can just try something different and do something different and see what happens when you do. But that being said, I guess my childhood wasn't, you know, extraordinary and it wasn't horrible. Product of a divorced couple and um, that's no surprise. And it certainly didn't affect me too negatively as I was brought up because my mom fell in love again and was remarried and my stepdad became my legal dad. And so I was actually born with a different last name and you know he took me and my sister as his own and that was really special for us. But I do think in some ways when you know that you have another dad and you don't have a relationship with him, there things start to happen when it comes to how do you earn attention? And I actually really point a lot of things back to that. Because if you also kind of like get into your head about how terrible high school was and like all that kind of thing, and I didn't have a lot of friends, it was always the psychology of like, how do you become an interesting enough person to acquire that attention or just build a friendship beyond the surface level thing. And so even though I don't think I ever figured that out in school, <laughs> later on it just it became oh, well if I if I work on myself more in the sense that I gain an expertise or learn a skill or surround myself with people who think like me, I started to realize that that was a fun way to meet new people because suddenly the way that you acquired in uh, 
intention was different. It wasn't like you had to earn it for some like weird, you're, you're pretty or popular reason. It was like, no, we're genuinely interested in the same things. And it took me a long time to find people who I, I could relate to that way. Okay. So I definitely want to get into that. Let, let me back up for a second, just so I'm clear if it's okay. So yeah. how old were you when your parents got divorced? I, oh, I think I was mm, two, three, four. Oh, little, yeah. little. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. And, um, not good, but yeah, know, just, yeah, yeah, you know, young enough. Clarifying. Yeah. yeah. And so your stepfather came in your life, really was your father in in reality and mm-hmm. and raising you. Mm-hmm. Where what happened to your dad? Um, my biological. Yeah. Um, he's still around. I think it's one of those things where he also has some identity crises with that because he 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 knew when they got divorced, you need to go with your mom. He, I remember very distinctly him telling me this at a very young age. You need to go with your mom. That is the right thing for you. And so that's what we did. And I imagine he had a similar thinking when John said, I want to be their dad. And he was thinking, well, this is a present man. This is a healthy relationship. This is the right thing to do. I'm just giving him that benefit of the doubt. But I think with that, again, identity crises, you know, you're a dad but you never see your kids. And so throughout our lives, you know, we would kind of get a call and um, he also was a truck driver. So sometimes he would actually be driving through Ohio. And so it was sort of like that kind of relationship. And every once in a while, it just felt really out of place. Like you kind of said that you're okay with us going and being a part of this family and you're not our dad anymore. So when you call and you're like, I want to talk to you more. And then when he moved on and ended up having a baby with, you know, in a new sort of married life, it was like, I want you to be a part of his life. And it was just like, I'm confused because for the majority of my entire life, we have not been a family. So now I have to, and I do think about this many times. I'm like, I have a half brother. I now have a half sister. And these are people I've never met before. And so there's always that that I know where they, I know where, what state they live in. I know what city they live in. But other than that, it's really no contact. Yeah. Uh, we've had some difficult phone calls in the past where I think his expectations were in the wrong place. And I'm always willing to take his call and just say, hey, how's it going? I'm doing good. You're doing good. We're two adults. We can talk. But other than that, once he crosses a line, I have to tell him like, this is absolutely none of your business. And you're not you haven't earned it. Yeah. Yeah. There's boundaries, you mm-hmm. know, and it's an interesting thing. You know, I know my own experience kind of having um, a similar situation where I had a father I did, that I didn't speak to for many, many years. Um, in his case, there was a lot of uh, troubles that made it kind of easy for us to put up those boundaries. As time has gone on, I've kind of taken the approach that it's been helpful for my kids and also for me. And I think for him, to kind of put a lot of things in the past and just be a little bit more curious um, than I had been in the past about kind of just letting it be what it is. But there's boundaries and every situation is different and there's no doubt, you know, yet you have to kind of choose, again, kind of getting to the point of intentionality, you know, what are you creating and who are you going to be in co-creation with? So I get it kind of, going back to then, you know, this childhood experience. So you grow up and it's you and your siblings. And where where in Ohio are you? 
Uh, Columbus. I've been in Columbus forever. Okay. Pretty good. much so, forever, I guess, since so, two or so. Okay, good. And so tell me a little bit, like expand upon this, you know, idea of friends and kind of all that, like wanting to be heard and seen and kind of, you know, how that all was for you. Yeah, I think um, I think it started to hit me. I've always had it pretty good in school because my mom was a teacher in the same district. I grew up in Worthington. Mm-hmm. And some kind of issue happened when I was in the, well, long story short, I moved, I was in open enrollment at my mom's school. And then at a certain point, they said they were maxed out and I needed to leave. And so it was very awkward because my mom teaches at the school and they're saying that your daughter has to go because she, she, we don't have room for her anymore. She's in open enrollment. She needs to go to the actual school she's supposed to go to in her mm-hmm. district. And so I had to, had to move schools for six months. It was supposed to be for the all of sixth grade. But when I left, it was hard because I left a very tight-knit group of girls we had sweatshirts and everything. It was ridiculous. And then... What? Well, all right, hold on. Okay. What, tell me, what are the sweatshirts? The sweatshirt was... The, the, it was like BFFs uh-huh. and it was like a five-petal flower. Uh-huh. And somebody's mom did it with like that paint, that mm, like bubble paint nice. stuff. It was like all of our names were on it. Does that Each still exist? Us. Do you have that sweatshirt? Oh no, God, I wish I did. Somebody does. So somebody, yeah, somebody has that sweatshirt. You need yeah. to find that or, or recreate <laughs> I need to look it. on yeah. eBay yeah. for that. Yes. We should recreate it. That'd be fun. Yeah. But so I went to another school and that was devastating because you're in sixth grade. You're about to go into middle school after that and then high school. And so your tight-knit friends are gone. These people are like, who are you? And so that six months there was just miserable. Like my teacher would call my mom just because they were Worthington teachers and she was really kind and would try to support me and just say, oh, she's not, she's not doing good. She's not having a good time. Suddenly open enrollment was no big deal anymore and I was able to go back. And that was different again because my my friends were still friends, but not the same way. They were also growing into their other friend groups, but they were still friends with each other. And then I came back and I was just like a totally different person after six months. It was a t- complete change. And so again, I was having to make new friends. And then you just go to middle school and everything falls apart. So I, that's, yes, it was, it was really difficult. And then we kind of did some weird stuff with my high school experience too. And I tried a different high school freshman year and then it wasn't working. So all of that made it really difficult, even though I was, I've never left. I've never been a child of, of moving, you know, military children's move, move, nothing like that. It was just bounced around a couple schools, messed up some some periods of friendship keeping and therefore, you know, didn't really understand how to do it anymore. I just, that's, that's pretty much how it started. Mm. And so any kind of like flashes of insight along the way, any um, kind of, you know, potential interests in the work that you're doing. I mean, I can see the connectivity to this kind of idea of like a audience and connection. Were you thinking about this work at all during that time or was it not on your radar really yet? No, not at all. I, it took me a long time. I, I'm Actually, I wrote about it in my second book that it kind of happened when um, I was more just... I had done a lot of things that were the right motions to go to school, get a career, kind of do the thing. And I just felt no purpose. That and prior to that, learning how to use a video camera. So there was a culmination of things. Learned how to use a video camera, learned about YouTube, and then found out that I could get educated on a topic I enjoyed that could also be sold as a skill set. And so 2009, 2010 is where all of those things came together. And that's really what I'm doing today. But no, my childhood... 
I don't think any of this really occurred to me. I do remember being excited about the idea of like orchestrating videos, but I thought they were going to be like music videos. I was very into like listening to music and like trying to, you know, um, what's the word? Anyway, just Chore- I was choreographed. Yes, video. choreographed videos. That's what I was doing mm-hmm. in my head when I would listen to music in my bedroom and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But no. Who were you listening to back then? Oh, uh, a lot of boys to men. Uh-huh. A lot of like, <laughs> like yeah. slow jams. Yeah. Uh, Motown yeah. Philly was kind of. I love R&B so yeah. much. Yeah but, yeah. but yeah, and then rap became cool and stuff yeah. like that. So. <laughs> okay. So, um, and, uh, and when you say you were getting educated, was that um, something that you were studying in college or this is your own uh, way of getting educated? Yeah, it was just me. I, I thought, um, my mom's always kept me really aware of what's happening in the political world. So I thought, oh, I'll go, I'll go to school for political science. And so that's how I ended up working at a law firm, long story short. So that was sort of the traditional side. But while I was at the law firm was when I discovered video. And then I realized from that experience, I was learning a trade called social media marketing. And in 2010... I had to find out from the West Coast what that was because Ohio was so far off from that being a part of their marketing strategy at the time. If it was, it was not expected to be paid for because mm-hmm. it, all we knew was that Facebook and Twitter were in existence and they're, they're important, but not that important. Just let's try it out and see what goes. Um, so no, everything I've, I'm doing now I'd have to say I, I self-educated myself on. But that being said, I was very fortunate when I took that job at the law firm because I was working for uh, one of the best fundraisers in the Democratic Party for the state of Ohio. He worked for Governor Strickland when he first took office. And then after Governor Strickland took office, he came to work for the law firm. And I assisted him for four or five years. So the people skills I learned on the fundraising and lobbying side of things have helped me tremendously as an introvert trying to start a business in this part of my life. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, and you describe yourself as an introvert, which is which is awesome and really uh <laughs> something I want to dive into. But, you know, I like, and kind of the point of this is really, again, kind of connecting these dots and things that seem to be so unrelated, you know, that you're, you're clerking, you're on this other path, you know, and then like, boom, out of nowhere, you know, in maybe an unlikely environment comes this thing, this social media thing, which then turns out to become your whole life Mm -hmm. um, professionally. You know, it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing how these things come to us, how we find them, they find us. I'm just curious, kind of like, I don't know, maybe spiritually or, you know, kind of like up a level meta, like where are you kind of in how you feel your life, you know, has been unfolding, um, you know, through the childhood, even the experience with your biological father, with your um, schooling, the friends, you know, again, kind of like, how do you reconcile life happening for you, even when sometimes it's really, really hard to get you to this point? Talk about that a little bit. I like the way you phrased that. I think when you look back at all those kind of sometimes horrific moments, you think of yourself at that time and how awful it was, or at least it always feels like when you're in a situation you don't enjoy. And of course, now I'm like, oh, wouldn't change a thing. Super love that people were horrible to me. Like, I actually do. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds weird, but I think the reason is what I think life was doing for me. In probably a lot of ways, I need development on emotional awareness. But I think the upside of that is that 
by going through a lot of these things, I've been able to have a certain level of stoicism in my thinking and um, not having super high expectations of people because I was let down a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I think once that happens, you can kind of choose two different things. You just expect everybody to let you down all the time or you just kind of let it ride Mm -hmm. and see. Instead of setting it high or setting it low, you just see how it goes. And so I think with that, it's allowed me to kind of talk to people in a way that first of all, I'm always trying to figure out how to be more valuable because I figured out if I know a lot and I can teach a lot, then people will pay attention to what I've got going on. And that's a super fun way to have a relationship with people. So I think that's what YouTube and mm-hmm. de- you know detail therapy, everything like that is doing for me. But it comes from the ability to not freak out emotionally about a lot of things, which I don't tend to do. I certainly have my moments. I'm definitely not sitting here just like stoic all the time. I wish I was sometimes, mm-hmm. but I think it's um, it's that I can really look at things objectively mm-hmm. a lot of the time, and I, I know that it's happening because there's something better coming. Mm-hmm. And and that's just because that's been your life, <laughs> literally. Yeah. yeah. And and you know, it's interesting. What what I hear when you say this kind of like stoic kind of philosophy. It's, it's it's like a awareness that you're bringing to the moment that allows you to decide, you know, how you want to be with it. And is your past serving you here or is it not? You know, is, is, is I think the choice that, you know, maybe you're making or that we make, you know, we're either unconsciously allowing our lives to run us or we're consciously deciding how we want to um, use that experience. Um, it could be everybody's going to let me down. You know, I'm never going to do anything. Or it could be, in this case, it's serving you because your expectations are just kind of, you know, um, adjusted to maybe the realities of of humankind. Definitely, and I just feel like even even your past is your past, whether it was good or bad. It's the past. Like it doesn't even really matter anymore. And so I think it it's tough for some people, I think, to reconcile because if somebody's disappointing to them, that and and they're probably sometimes right that that person really had it out for them. The thing is, none of this stuff is ever about us. It's always about how the other person is feeling at that moment and why they decided to not show up for your coffee date or or just not give you the job or whatever the case. It is stuff that we don't have control over. And I think um, that's something that's been, you know, just knowing like, oh, I sleep pretty good. Like these kinds of like life things. I'm like, I think it has to do with the fact that I'm not stressing myself out over things I can't control. Do Mm -hmm. I stress myself out about things I can control? Absolutely. (laughs) But things I can't control, I usually just kind of, I have to let it roll off. Um, Because I just know that that's what's helping me get through every day. If we really... If we really let ourselves sit on these things for too long, we convince ourselves that the past is the only thing. Mm -hmm. And I just, I can't do that. It's not possible for me to wrap my mind around that. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, you do have kind of a really strong still connection to family. I know that from knowing you. Um, You know, you and Vin work together and your brother, and, you know, you're, you're still very much kind of, Connected. I don't. I'm not sure what your relationship's like with your mom, but it seems like that kind of we're the same person. The past, <laughs> yeah. So you've really chosen to bring the parts of the past that you honor forward 
Yeah, because it's like you want good for yourself, right? Yeah. So I think, yeah, definitely. Um, it's interesting because Vincenzo's actually like first generation Italian. And when I look at him and when I go back to see his family and stuff, it's like, oh man, I don't even know what family is compared <laughs> to these people. My mm-hmm, God. Mm-hmm. But but we both learn a lot from each other because every every family has its faults, of course. But um, yeah, I think when I, when, I guess if you summarize me as somebody that's very close to family, um, we've learned a lot more about that in the last couple of years and mm-hmm. we continue to learn a lot about that together. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, is that um, something you want to expand upon Yeah, a sure. Bit? Yeah. yeah. So um, I have two younger twin brothers and the older by a minute was Johnny and Johnny passed away a year ago, um, just about a year ago. So that was really crazy for us. And Johnny had a little bit of a tough time too um, for different reasons. He was quite popular. (laughs) And so um, he and Jimmy really had a pretty fun life for a while. Um, But... Yeah, it really kind of took us off guard and mm-hmm. um, obviously was very tragic at the time. Still is very tragic because it still feels really new. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that the I love yous and the hugs and the time together and all of those things were as important to us. Like truly, like when you really say something's important to you, like truly important to you as they are now. Because now you know what loss is like. Now you know what it's like to um, not have talked to them that day or not have hugged them goodbye or kissed them goodbye or whatever, or not to have had that final conversation with them or not to have given that piece of advice that you wish you had. Knowing that now, what it actually feels like, you act completely different as a family. Mm -hmm. Now the I'm proud of you thing isn't just something you write in a card. Mm -hmm. It's something that your dad is like saying from the depths of his soul Mm -hmm. every single time I see him. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I think we've learned a lot about that. Yeah. Yeah, I remember kind of connecting again with you when I heard Mm -hmm. and we had coffee and I remember, you know, you kind of opening up about it and, you know, I really understand, you know, how hard it's been for you and your family. And I think it's an interesting thing to kind of share. And this is, you know, kind of this vulnerable sharing that, you know, means so much to people because mm-hmm. you're not alone. People are experiencing tragedy and loss. And, um, you know, if, if you can, you know, speak a little bit to how you've managed to honor it. I know you took some time off. Mm -hmm. How um, it's been kind of now woven into your work and life. I get there's like this deep sense of gratitude and a profound, you know, connection to, you know, how fragile things are. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk a little bit about, you know, kind of how you managed through a tragedy and how you've kind of now started to, um, and I know it's still fresh and hard, but let it, you know, become um, part of making you who you are. Well, I think one thing that is obvious probably, but I said earlier, like I need some help on the emotional awareness thing. Mm -hmm. This was a great way Mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. I have never experienced such a tragedy. I mean, like, and the worst part is that I have a real dad. I have a biological dad who's not in my life. Like in a lot of ways, you could consider that a huge loss. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but I think... More than that, 
I remember, um, I, unfortunately, I was in London when it happened. And so that was the first really big weight was that my whole family said goodbye to him. He wasn't there, but they said goodbye. And that was something I couldn't do. Mm-hmm. Not at the hospital anyway. And so, you know, as these things are happening, you're just sort of like grappling with the weight of what's your fault or not. And it's just an easy place to go. Sure. Everybody's going to that place when a tragedy happens. You know, what could everybody have done differently? Mm-hmm. You can't, you know, you can't keep doing that. But more than anything, I think what he did was, I'm very good at getting things done. My audience follows me for that reason. It's, you know, how do you make the most of your morning? How do you pack your day? How do you take breaks that are healthy for you? How do you make sure you're getting enough sleep? And I've got my whole day blocked out. Um, If I'm ever late, it's a huge, huge mistake. (laughs) So um, that being said, when this happened, I was on a trip. There was lots of content pre-recorded. It was all to go out, scheduled, et cetera. I had tons of stuff to go out, but I knew that that was not authentic to me. And genuinely, I didn't even want to, I, I didn't want to see my smiling face on the internet, period. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was also supposed to host a live stream for an event. And I had to tell that event coordinator, like my brother literally just died mm-hmm. within the last 12 hours. I will not be going live. I can't, mm-hmm. I literally can't. So, um, but my audience was very understanding. I did not, I posted on my Instagram and just kind of said, this has happened. And I showed up about a month later and unedited, just sat in my pajamas and told everybody what happened. And that was really hard. But I think uh, because it was a moment that it wasn't me smiling and telling everybody to get the most out of their day, I think it was a real opportunity to pause and say, life is not perfect. This terrible thing has happened to me and I can't ever be the same. Mm-hmm. And they need to hear that because they should know that. Mm-hmm. And I want them to know that, but I had never really had a moment where my perfectionism allowed me to find a good chance to say, I'm not perfect. You know, like this was the way. Yeah. And that opened up more opportunities for me to get comfortable with that. Mm. I think he did that for me. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's it's the loss is is significant, right? So, you know, not having somebody you love like that, that you're that close to in your life is hard to get over the loss of that. But, you know, for you to say, I think he did that for me, that's, that's a pretty powerful position to stand in. And, you know, I'm sure it's sometimes easier than others, but like seeing kind of how you've been pushed to really expand and grow and then share that with an audience. I mean, you have such a platform. You have um, an audience that, you know, you getting to be really you, you know, and yes, you know, they want to hear about all your tools and hacks and, you know, the ways that you can help them navigate life. But like life happens mm-hmm. and it was happening to you. Mm-hmm. And letting them see that I, I can imagine was maybe, you know, the, the, the definitely the, the most important thing that you could do. Absolutely. I think mostly because you don't really intentionally do it, but when you start a platform, or at least you don't, if you're in it for the right reasons, you don't get on a platform to become higher than thou. Like mm-hmm. I just didn't know how to find the opportunity to make us all peers. Mm-hmm. And I actually believe with social media, everyone's a peer. Like you, somebody could say something tomorrow and no one knows who they are and the whole world can know who they are. 
five seconds later. But there wasn't a real chance for me to say, no, really, guys, I care about your opinions too. I care about what experience you have had too. I care about you teaching me too. And when you are in such a vulnerable state like that, it opens up the floodgates because all they care about is supporting you at that moment. And so suddenly it's a teachable moment for me. Mm-hmm. And they take so much ownership over that. Mm. I mean, the number of one-year anniversary DMs I got was <laughs> extraordinary. Mm. I mean, almost as extraordinary as the fact that they were completely supportive of me taking off as much time as I needed to. Yeah. I mean, isn't it interesting? Because, you know, you're doing this thing and you're, and you're there you know, in service, you're sharing, right? And yeah, this is your job and, you know, you're you're making money doing it, but but hopefully there's something that's really of substance that people are paying for that are subscribing to that are, um, that it's coming of this. Yeah. Yet, you know, at this time, you get to just share who you are, who you really are, what you're experiencing, and then like, look what comes back to you, sure, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Pretty cool. It's pretty cool. It is really cool. And I don't take it for granted. I really, and I think it goes back to all my childhood issues, I guess, but I want to earn that attention every day. Not because I need the attention, but because I care about the relationship. But I care about how much I have to do for it. Yeah. So I I wanted to come back to that. Um, So let's talk a little bit about kind of this um, you had mentioned earlier, you know, and again, this connection to the childhood and and how you you know kind of have used it to fuel building an audience and and getting that connection how do you separate you know it can be a, a, a lot there's so many different avenues you're speaking with Gary V which I'm like totally uh, <laughs> envious of because I love That's Gary nice. like you do it's He's awesome great. And, and, you know, writing and podcasts and, you know, vlogging. I mean, there, there's so many different elements. Um, you said you're scheduled, you know, pretty much all the time. So how do you kind of choose or what is your um, kind of uh, consciousness or awareness around how you're being mindful, thoughtful about what you're doing or do you feel a sense of still that kind of childhood? I need to, I need to, I want to, I want to. There's something else that's still kind of connected to that. And it's not a, a judgment. It's like, just where are you right now with all of that? I, they're constantly battling each other because I am also um, fairly adaptable. So whenever new things are popping up and th- you know it, the fun thing to try is going on, um, I love being an early adopter of those things. But at the same time, I know that I'm not best served if I'm in too many places at once. I think one could argue I'm still in too many places at once. But I, we have you know, some core values and a mission, a very clear mission and vision of what we see to be important to us as a team. And um, I'm just the face of that. But together, we make these decisions of where we want to be helping people go after the life that they want. And there are a couple of different places that we can do that. And as long as each place has a different purpose, I think that's what's important. Um, If you really get into the weeds of it, it used to sort of be... Maybe it still is. It depends on who you ask. You got to be on Facebook. You got to be on Twitter. Got to be on LinkedIn. Got to be on Instagram. Got to have a podcast. Got to have a website. Got to have all these things. But I actually believe that the audience, if you go to them, 
as sort of one core place where it is your home base and and you talk to them, they will go where you tell them, you know, you are, as long as the value is there. And so it was really sort of, okay, the YouTube channel is the heart of everything. It's just sort of where people know me for. And so there's two episodes a week there. But when we were trying to expand on the type of content and conversations like this didn't really fit there, but they wanted that content, then it was like, okay, well, then we need to have a podcast for that. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of how we separate those things out. The same thing happened with a book. Speaking became a skill because I learned how to talk. Mm-hmm. Video did that for me. Then learning how to be on stage is a different thing. Walking off stage and people saying, where's your book? And my audience on YouTube saying, where's your book? We want a book. We want a book. And I'm like, you guys, I make free videos on the internet. What do you need a book for? Mm-hmm. When you listen to them, that's where they just help you decide where that next platform is. So the I don't write books because I find it to be fun. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. not a writer. Um, I can write a quick video. I can write an Instagram caption. I can write a little bit of a podcast thing here. But I'm not a true writer. So to allocate resources toward that has everything to do with what the audience wants and how they learn and the fact that we are not going to be um, telling the audience how to learn. We want to get in front of them where they are, but also where we've calculated that we can do the best job possible. Mm -hmm. I would love to join TikTok. My audience wants me on TikTok, but (laughs) unfortunately... um, Not my audience, excuse me. My team wants me on TikTok, but unfortunately, I just can't seem to wrap my mind around why it makes mm-hmm. sense for us. Yeah. It's, so we just kind of have to look at everything and say, you know what? This is not going to be the best use of our time, at least not yet, but let's keep look, keeping an eye on it and we, listening to the audience because I really do what they ask me to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've listened to Gary talk a little bit about that too. And I think it's kind of a ongoing and interesting debate, you know, as to um, what percentage of your time you're going to put into some of this new stuff that comes up and... Mm-hmm. He seems to really kind of advocate like, you know, go 80% or 100%, you know, where you really, really believe you should be and then go another 20% on top of that. And there's a whole hustle thing that he, you know, subscribes to, as you know, I want to come back to some of that, but I don't want to forget, you had mentioned that you see yourself as an introvert. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think this is like a big misnomer about introverts. I see myself as an introvert too. Uh, for somebody that's so public, right, who's really out there speaking in front of big audiences and, you know, has, as you said, learned to, it's hard to imagine that you didn't before, but I believe you, you're such a natural in talking and connecting and being visible and out there and public. You know, tell me a little bit more about kind of identifying as an introvert and maybe how you've um, expanded or transformed over time. It's definitely a transformation, but not in the way that it's ever going to, I think, flip-flop. I I just know that it's in my core Mm -hmm. to be an introvert because I know that right now, as much as I am enjoying this conversation, I am expending energy. Mm -hmm. Like It is just science for me. Yeah. And so with that, I'm going to need some time later on. And, and, I, mm-hmm. and I got some of it earlier. I mm-hmm. like acquired some energy earlier, having the time alone in the morning, doing a little bit of a workout alone. And now I'm going to spend the day with my team and at work and, and having interviews and things like that mm-hmm. where I'm spending that energy. I got to go get it back at some point. Mm-hmm. I know that that's not true with the extroverted breed. And I love them because they're the ones that pull 
the most positive version of myself publicly mm. out of me because I know how much they thrive off the energy of others. And so knowing that, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, I want you to thrive off of good energy. And so that's been a big part of it. But also just things come with experience. You know, the word networking is such a scary word to a lot of people. But if you didn't know people, if you don't know people, you really can't go anywhere in life. It's not just about getting an audience or followers. It's genuinely knowing people who can move the needle for you. And you just have to decide that meeting a bunch of people is going to eventually get you there no matter what happens in the next five minutes or in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, the biggest speaking engagement I ever got was somebody I met at an event 10 years prior at my first conference ever. That's, you can't count those connections. So with learning that, learning how to communicate because you know, talking to people is now psychology for me. It's how do I find, how do I find something interesting for them? How do I relate to them? How do I present something to them that they'll want to hear about so that we can now have a relationship together? This has been somewhat transactional for me. It sounds kind of bad, Mm -hmm. but it's also taught me how to be a better um, extroverted introvert. Mm -hmm. And I just know that there are moments where it's like, I'm doing an interview today. I'm going to be, I'm going to flip that switch a little bit more. I'm going to have, save up some energy so I can use up that energy at this interview. Or when I go to speak, I actually find that the speaking part is the easy part. Mm -hmm. The time before when I'm trying to psych myself up to go on stage and people want to chat or after, there's lots of people that want to chat. Mm -hmm. It's that time that actually spends my energy more than being on stage. I would kind of relate it to actors. A lot of actors are introverted in a lot of ways because their job is to go and act like somebody else. And they just have to do a job. And so I think we just assume that when somebody has a public persona, that it's because they thrive off of energy of others. And so therefore they're doing it to get that energy from others and the attention from others. But it's not 100% of the case. And I definitely wouldn't say that about extroverts as an overarching theme. Yeah. You know, it's, I've never actually thought about it or heard it described that way from this like energy standpoint. Um, Because I can relate to that. You know, this is like super fun for me. I love doing it. I find it to be really enjoyable when I'm doing it. You know, as you kind of get into it, you settle into it, mm-hmm. you realize like, you know, that it, that it's happening, you know, kind of somewhere like you wanted it to, or these moments that happen that you're like, this is great. I'm so happy I'm doing this. But there is so much still for me as an, as an introvert that kind of goes into it. And mm-hmm. I, I've kind of intentionally decided like not to prep for that reason, because I think the prep kind of gets me like even more energy, like zapped. It's like you start to create it to be something. You start to like worry or tell a story Mm -hmm. about it or whatever. And, you know, for me, just kind of naturally getting in here feels like it's the least amount of energy so that I can have the most amount of energy. Totally. Right. But, but it's true. It's like, even though you love it, even though it's so fun, it's really great it still isn't a natural thing to do for somebody that's introverted. Absolutely. I guess I would compare it to the gym, right? Like, because you have to go and you have to work really hard at the gym if you want to see results. Well, for an introvert, it's kind of the same thing. We have to work really, really hard in that moment, but we're so happy, usually. We did what we did when we're done. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, that was so special. I wouldn't have known this if I didn't have that conversation. I wouldn't have this new connection if not for taking a chance on that opportunity, going to that event, introducing myself to that person or doing an interview. Mm -hmm. And so I think the more you get comfortable with being uncomfortable, the more you start to feel the benefit of it. And the more likely you will start to allocate those pockets 
pockets of energy rather than just avoid completely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what does really kind of naturally give you energy? Like what would be the things that like left to your own devices? These are the things that you would love to do that don't require that kind of buildup. Um, is it, you know, just being alone? Um, you know, tell me a little bit of, about like what kind of feels really comfy and loving. Yeah, I think got to love being at home. Got to love The Crown season three is back on Netflix. So I'm real excited. Uh, very excited about that. But also I think um, because I found a creative outlet, the thing I used to be excited for for probably 10 years was editing video. I mean, I, I wouldn't have been on YouTube if I didn't learn how to teach myself to edit. And that all came from a culmination of events. Um, I'm kind of over it now, but I still sometimes feel excited about the creativity in it. So I'm much more in like a producer mindset now, writing videos, writing creative, planning it out. That gets me excited. And, um, you know, we've expanded into an office now and um, bless the startup world. They thought that open floor plans were the best thing ever. I find them to be awful. <laughs> I find them to be awful. And I think um, even if a team thrives really well in um, an open office space, it can be difficult to get real work done. And so I'm usually in there for the open thriving type of work. We've got to have meetings together. Mm-hmm. We have to strategize together. We need to work together on a couple of things. But that's just not... It, it's, an, I guess, a partially an inter, you know, introvert thing. Mm-hmm. But it's more just... A, if I can be in my home office and calendar block my way through four tasks and be done in a couple of hours and be able to have an easier afternoon, I thrive off mm-hmm. of that. And so I think that's why I've taken the morning routine to kind of an extreme and how much I enjoy it because I just see how high, highly efficient and productive and high performance that I am mm-hmm. during that time. Yeah. So I want to talk about morning routine. I um, was thinking about this earlier when we were talking about Gary and I met Gary first, I think it was like in 2009 or 10 when he did the first uh, summit series. I did not know Gary. I actually, summit series as a whole was like a huge eye opener for me. I was here in Columbus. I was working in a um, corporate environment, um, wasn't surrounded by a lot of startups or, you know, kind of influencers or thinkers or um, all of that kind of was like fresh on the scene in general, and I wasn't exposed to it. So I, I go on to the boat, and there's Gary, you know, spouting off and cursing and talking about buying the jets and doing his shtick, you know. <laughs> and like, I had never seen anything like that. And then, interestingly enough, and like, this is like one of those synchronicities that I just like still kind of laugh at and like pinch myself and feel like has some sort of relevance in all of this. I end up at dinner that night with me, two other people I just met like two days ago, and Gary. The four of us are now having dinner. And I've seen him a couple of times and he like remembers it. I don't know like how he has such like an unbelievable memory. I remembered it, but I didn't expect him to do that. You know? <laughs> um, and you know, at that time, you know, I, I've I've seen Gary shift. This is my perception. I don't know him, but I, I've seen what I think is a shift in his thinking. It used to be hustle, 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 and like 120%. And I still see him talk about this sometimes. And I, and I believe in what he's saying uh, to some degree, um, may, maybe almost entirely. 
you know, he was just recently, I was seeing something about how he was like poking at 30 year olds, like who think that they're supposed to have it, right? Like I get that and I agree with that. But I, I wondered, you know, at some point if part of his shift was this like, you cannot hustle like all the time. Like you have to charge your batteries. You have to get your energy that you've got to be able to like elevate the things that, you know, maybe matter more that give you energy. And, you know, he's talking about gratitude and compassion and love and, you know, this language that, you know, wasn't really in this hustle mm-hmm. world. So I say all of that because I know you've spent time with Gary and, you know, we're talking about energy and, and you know, kind of how you go about it. You know, tell me a little bit about kind of Good Morning, Good Life and how that has emerged and if, you know, any of it's related to, um, you know, some of the things we're talking about with Gary. It's funny you put it that way. I think there's a lot of reasons why Good Morning, Good Life became prevalent in my life. And it was definitely the hustle mentality. I, I think you're right. Gary, first of all, I think he remembers you for a lot of reasons, but he remembers you because he cares about people so much. And I'm not saying I don't because clearly I, I do in a lot of the, the way that I've presented myself today and the way that I do, but there's an ex, huge extrovertedness to it. And he thrives off that energy. And his wife probably needs to slow him down on the weekends and say like, this is what we do on the weekends, Gary. <laughs> and we all... That's also, a tough job. I wonder yeah. how, how she does. This she woman is a saint. Yeah, right. <laughs> she, he keeps everybody very secret and is so smart because, yeah, yeah he needs to keep her a secret. She's amazing. <laughs> yeah. But I think um, we all kind of knew that this moment was going to come when his kids are getting older mm-hmm. and you are going to be faced with some more difficult conversations, not just your wife. Your kids mm-hmm. are not going to ask. Mm-hmm. But thank goodness for the fact that she has helped him do what he's done so far. Because what I think he's really saying about the 120% or hustle and Mm. everything is, dude, you're not that busy. Mm. Like you could be doing more. And it's not always about accomplishing more. It's just, if you are sitting and complaining or upset or not cool with what's happening right now, then that's the problem. For those people who are happy with whatever they're, he always says, like, if you're happy making $30,000 a year, da, 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 you know, that's 100% true. If I've had anything in my brain, it's always been a state of, oh, life could be a lot better. Like, mm-hmm. And so I learned from him that I could make that happen. Mm-hmm. So I really think that's where Good Morning, Good Life comes from is if you can't even start your day on those terms, if you can't even start your day feeling like you can own it, not 100% of it, but enough of it to move the needle, then I think it's going to be even harder later mm-hmm. for you to try to do it. Mm-hmm. Even at night, let's say it's your only time to focus on your passion project and you love it so much, but you've got to pay the bills and you have this other job. That's fair. But even your body is like so tired at the yeah. end of the day and it's really hard to get it done. So Good Morning, Good Life has just been my solution for I can hustle first thing in the morning mm-hmm. and get my best work done at least during that time and try to be my most productive self the rest of the day, still have time for a family in the evening, still um, be able to enjoy myself a little bit, but know that I tried as hard as I could to get to where I am. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm not the most successful person, but what I have accomplished, I'm fairly certain is reflective of the work ethic I've had thus far. Mm -hmm. And so 
I, I think it's that it, the hustle plus the gratitude is what allows me to sit in that and go, yeah, this is probably about right. Mm-hmm. This is probably about right because I have worked very hard and I haven't just sat here and said, well, it has to be right. And this is how it works. And this is how somebody else is doing. So I much must work, must work, must work. No, I keep trying things and they fail. And then I try something else and it works. And then we go with that for a little while until it's failing. And mm-hmm. <laughs> then we do something new. And you just got to keep feeling it out. And I think that that's the thing mm-hmm. is if you are not willing to go on that journey, then there's not going to be good news for you anytime yeah. soon because nothing's going to get delivered mm-hmm. to you. And I think that's really what he's talking about. Mm. So tell me, you know, like what what does your morning look like? Tell me like for you and maybe for, you know, the audience, you know, what what are you suggesting um, a good morning looks like? So I wake up pretty early and I think it's kind of, it's getting annoying now because I'm like, there's never an early, early enough hour. Yeah. There's never an early enough hour. What, what is the early okay, hour? Okay, so right yeah. now it's 4.30. But I really, after, um, I love daylight savings because I can yeah. get that hour back and my body still thinks it's 4.30. So yeah. I woke up at 3.30 that following Monday and it was the best thing ever. But What time do you go to sleep? Um, typically in bed by 9.30. Okay. 9, 9, 9.30. 9 would be the the best. Mm-hmm. Nine is the best. Sometimes I don't fall asleep till 10 o'clock though. So I'm trying to get somewhere between six and a half to seven and a half hours. Yeah. I was like, like channeling yeah. Howard Stern there. I'm like counting on my fingers yeah. and trying <laughs> yeah. to do the math. I, um, yeah. It was, it was, uh, it's, it's, it's hard, but I prioritize the sleep over the waking up early. I just know that if I want to wake up early, that means I got to go to sleep. Yeah. And I talk about that in the book is like the sleep buffer period. There's the actual seven hours, let's say that you want to sleep. Mm-hmm. But if that's true, you have to also allocate for some time before to actually get in bed mm-hmm. and fall asleep, which a lot of people don't even do. It's mostly because even if they are in bed, they've got their phone with them and that's not going to help them fall asleep. Right. And then the time in the morning when you're not awake yet. Like mm-hmm. genuinely, I'm, I'm not planning on 4.30 to 5 o'clock to being the most productive time. Right. It's like learn how to walk, wash your face, right. drink some lemon water. And so that's typically what I'm doing. Lemon mm-hmm. water, uh, coffee, I do morning pages, which is a practice that Julia Cameron talks about in The Artist's Way, which is mm-hmm. three longhand um, stream of consciousness pages. And that gets all the crap out of my head, the things mm-hmm. I'm stressing out about, the things that are not sexy, that you hope your grandchildren are not going to leave and read in this journal mm-hmm. someday. And then um, I do a little bit of reading and write my goals out. I rewrite my goals every day just because I'm very forgetful. I don't want to forget what they are because i got to stay focused. I do some affirmations and then I do like my big eat the frog of the day, Mm -hmm. which is typically writing out some kind of creative, Mm -hmm. which is the best thing I can do at that moment anyway. And so that's by like what time? I would say I'm diving into that by six o'clock, 5.30, six o'clock, depending on how fast I got my morning pages scribbled out. So your morning is like that part, the routine part of your morning is over by what time? I'm trying to be done with it by, I guess it's between 5.30 and 6. Today it was like 5.45 and I felt like I had this little 15 minute pocket before I had to actually start working on a writing piece I had to do this morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. I I'm, I have um, three kids and you know I've got two big teenagers. I guess they're all teenagers now, but um, some of them don't go to bed till much later. Mm-hmm. So um you know, getting to bed early is more of a challenge for me. For sure. I, you know, I totally agree with the sleep piece and the morning routine piece. And 
Um, that sounds like you've got a pretty good one. I can't wake up that early. I, I, I just like, I can't not. I'm just like, it's another thing I can't unknow. Like yeah. when I wake up at seven now, I've, it's bad, but I just genuinely feel like I screwed up. And it's just a habit that I've gotten into. And it's a thing I've told myself. Now, that being said, I'm married, but I don't have kids. Mm -hmm. And so this is where the conversation with my audience tends to be a little bit difficult because I can't present that side of the argument. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do know that it's very easy to let anything become the excuse. Sure. And um, even if you can't have, and I have an obnoxious amount of time, but I don't have kids, right? Even if you can't have the hour, if you can get 15 minutes sometimes that's going to be the best 15 minutes of your day. Yeah, I think it's the concept. I mean, I I agree with you. There are some um, kind of uh, limitations when you add in, you know, uh, an element like children. I mean, that is going to consume uh, your time um, in part, at least, you know, depending on kind of what you want out of that relationship, Mm -hmm. right? Um, If you want to have kids that, that you love and that love you and that are up to good things, you're going to need to invest time doing that. But, you know, there are plenty of hours in the day and generally time is not the real root cause. Right. You know, it's about kind of, you know, the intentionality, prioritizing it and and doing what you said, like take 15 minutes. You know, if, if you don't have an hour, take 15 minutes. And it's hard to find those 15 minutes these days because we have smartphones that don't let us remember how to daydream anymore. No so question. It's, yeah. it's, you know, I consider it a victory when the people I meet throughout the day, sometimes my husband or somebody at the office, or I was like, did you hear what happened? Did you hear this? Did you? I'm like, no. Mm -hmm. Genuinely, I have no idea what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And it's because I'm a content creator. So a lot of times I'm in these platforms for a purpose. It's usually to deliver something and sometimes to reply to my audience. But I'm not just scrolling endlessly anymore because I've found my time to be a little bit more valuable. Okay, so tell me just um, with the last few minutes that we have, this is your second book. Mm-hmm. Uh, when should we expect it? Mm-hmm. December 10th. December 10th. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. On Amazon. It's mm-hmm. coming up. And what has been the book writing process for you? Tell me a little bit about kind of how you've, what you've learned about writing a book um, and this book in particular. Well, uh, the, what I've done for the last two is very much calendar blocking-esque. I, I have to batch it. I have to set a specific period of time, basically a little campaign period of time where I'm writing because otherwise it's not going to get done. So I outlined three weeks over the summer to write the book. And up to that point, I had an outline and fleshed out a lot of things. And a lot of my content gets tested out on YouTube and on the podcast and things. So I know what I want to put in the book and I just have to expand on it from there. That being said, I still think I'm giving myself a hard time writing a book all by myself. I Mm -hmm. think next time I'm definitely going to get a little bit more help Mm -hmm. because there's sort of like an imposter syndrome of if I don't write it myself, then it's not really mine. Mm -hmm. But also like, was it the best possible thing? Mm -hmm. Probably not. So I think there's a balance, but I have to give myself an entire three weeks. And Mm -hmm. with that, I just reverse engineer, you know, what needs to get written and what amount of time and how much I should try to shoot for every day to get Mm -hmm. it done so that it's done. Because then I got to get back to the every day. So I very much batch that out and and then that way I get it done and I can make good on my promise. And Do you self-publish? I am self-publishing yeah. for the second time. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's much more of a process when we do that, but I'm also just so on my own timeline all yeah. the time. It's so hard being an entrepreneur and wanting to work with a traditional publisher sometimes. Although it's nice to have a lot of things outsourced, 
I just don't want to wait a year. Yeah. I just don't. Yeah, I, I get it. I mean, that seems to be kind of the the big downside with going the publishing route is you're just not at the, you're at somebody else's mercy of somebody else's schedule. Right. And yeah, by the way, three weeks doesn't sound like a lot of time. It's, to not, write a book. it's not a lot, but I think if you really know what you're talking about and you truly do nothing else and you stay in that space as much as you can, yeah, it's like 3,000 words a day and I just got to hit it and I do. And because I'm a little rule follower mm-hmm. and I just do the thing and then we edit, we edit it heavily after that. <laughs> well, it, it does seem like, you know, this, this like rule following thing has really been a really important thing for you. And I found it to be true for me, although it wasn't something that I did at all actually for most of my life, right? It wasn't until like I was an adult and realized like I was... Uh, had responsibilities <laughs> yeah. and I didn't want them to all get fucked up. You yeah. know? I'm like, I should probably put in some rules. I should probably like have a plan yeah. and like following it, whether it be, you know, my work or running or whatever it is, like rules, planning, you know, again, kind of coming back to this morning routine, it seems like, you know, following a plan and everything that you do, you know, has really allowed you to be so successful. Yes, but it's a balance too because the rule follower thing is a, is a characteristic of perfectionism and a perfectionist. And so I'm definitely a recovering perfectionist in a lot of ways because it's always what I've been shooting for. But it's really hard to hate on it the most because it's gotten me really far. So mm-hmm. as long as I think you give yourself some grace that it's you know it's never, ever, ever going to be perfect. But if you do your best to try to envision what perfection looks like and execute, then if you come close, it's awesome. Right. And that's what's been working for me, just yeah. wanting to come close. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, good morning, good life, December yeah. 10th. That's exciting. Very exciting. Um, Thank you. What else, anything else you want to share? Kind of final thoughts? Any uh, yeah, I mean, gigs or anything? I think coming that's up? it. No, I yeah. think that's it. But yeah, I think we're just continuing to do this thing um, on YouTube and on the podcast. We just, we're just trying to help as many people as we can to see that they can do what they want to do on their terms. And I think when you start to own that and you stop looking out at the rest of the world that's disappointing you, um, it life gets so much more fun. Mm. And so I just want that for more people. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you. I appreciate you leading the way in Columbus and um, beyond, you know, really uh, kind of being uh, the expert in the field in this community and doing so much good work for so many people. I certainly appreciate it. And I appreciate you being here today and for the uh, inspiration for the podcast. Well, I appreciate you offering me that credit, <laughs> but you're doing a great job. And I appreciate just knowing you and, and what you've done for this city too. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks, Amy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 